Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef Marshall Atkinson of Atkinson Consulting. In today's episode, we leap headfirst into the world of embroidery and digitizing. It's a fascinating world populated by colorful characters and professionals who make it their duty to create the guts of an embroidery design. For some, digitizing is a mere setup charge that represents a cost to be minimized when building a promotional campaign. For others, it's one of the most important elements of the entire order. Digitize poorly and you end up costing yourself extra money and time on the shop floor not to mention compromising local quality over countless promotional items. Our guest today is Eric Campbell, the head digitizer at Black Duck Embroidery in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he creates some of the industry's most beautiful and complex digitized files. In addition to Eric's time at Black Duck, he's a prolific writer and presenter within the digitizing and embroidery fields, having written for Printware Magazine, Wearables Magazine, and the well-regarded MrXStitch.com website. His popular column is called Ghosts in the Embroidery Machine, where he exposes a more varied readership of artists, crafters, craftivists, fiber workers, and lover of all stripes to the inner workings of machine embroidery and digitizing. Buckle up, folks. It's going to be a heck of a ride. Eric Welcome to the podcast, sir. Oh, so glad to be here. Mark, Marshall, also glad to have you here. It's great to be able to talk to you guys. Well, it's going to be quite a roller coaster, so let's buckle up. <laughs> I, I want to start off and just kind of set the scene here, Eric. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into the crazy world of embroidery and digitizing? First thing I'm going to say is I absolutely slid into it sideways, and that's something I find that a lot of us have done. Yes, like most of us. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. It really started out, I was a box handler. I mean, I was in the back of a box truck handling boxes of shirts and dumping them off and doing deliveries. That's how this really started. I was at the university studying English, particularly medieval studies. And that was really my drive. That's what I was doing. But I'm somebody who's curious. I'm somebody who's pretty techie. Uh, My mother was a seamstress. My dad was a mechanic. So it's like with all those things coming together and the fact that I used to love doing things with computers, it wasn't a big stretch that I would start helping out with things, helping out with machines. And one of the things that happened is we were short an operator on one of the big Tajima 12-head embroidery machines. And I, I was unabashedly, not only unafraid to mess with it, I really wanted to get in there and play with the thing. Yeah. And so once they noticed that I could do that ably and I operated for not too long, the next thing that kind of happened was that I noticed they had a computer under a dust jacket in a corner of the place that I was working. 
And I asked what it was. And uh, flatly, when they said, oh, that's for digitizing, that's for making the software that runs the machines. And nobody wants to do it. Everybody's kind of afraid to work on it. And so I offered I, at my original kind of box handling wage, I offered to learn on my own. And the boss said, if you can stay late on your own and teach yourself, you can do it. And that's it. I mean, within three months, I was a full-time production digitizer. Wow. Which is fast, I know. But it's something I, for some reason, I took to it pretty naturally. And I know that's not everybody's pathway to it. But part of it being an operator is a big deal. And that's something I say over and over. Everybody says, what's the best way to be a digitizer? And I say, embroider first. Right. Know about fabrics, that kind of stuff. And so that's how I slid into it, really. It was all about just being willing and curious. And frankly, though I did go back and finish my degree, I haven't really looked back. It's something that I love doing. Right, right, right. Well, and Eric, as I said in my introduction, you have been absolutely prolific in terms of how you generate content. Not only do you write for a number of publications, but you've done a number of presentations at industry shows, you've hosted webinars, and you know, you're know you a real legitimate expert in this field. I'm always curious to understand as to what motivated you to share your art, to share your expertise when you could have just been spending more time digitizing and not sharing all this knowledge? Like what's been in it for you? You know, so the thing is when you start the way I did and I started entirely on my own out here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you might not be surprised to know there's not a lot of people here to teach. And I had to learn digitizing entirely on my own. The first quote unquote friends I had in the industry were magazines. I mean, it was the stuff that was in the magazines. And so I started entering contests, frankly, the first thing I did. And that was years into my digitizing. I started to enter contests and I won a few. And after I won some of the contests, some of the original stuff from Stitches, the Stitch Off, that's when the people from Stitches contacted me and kind of offered me this chance. And I had already been kind of early in on blogging and websites and such like that. So when they offered me a chance to blog, I kind of leapt at it because the people who had been blogging around it and people who had been writing for Stitches, these were people who were kind of my heroes. And as we know, you know, doing podcasting, the people who are out there who don't have someone else to talk to, they catch that media and you're their friend in the industry. And that's how I felt about these people. And I realized, you know, I could be that person for someone and I could bring my voice to it. And I had a unique experience that wasn't the same as the ones I'd seen out there. So I thought, you know, if I can do this for one person, if there's one other person out there struggling and I can save them the trial and error, as important as I think trial and error is, and it's super important to digitizing embroidery, if I could save them some of the first hiccups and bring them some understanding and honestly just foster that conversation so more people would want to get into it, you know, it'd be worth it for me. And that's why I did it, you know, free of getting paid. There was no money in the early days whatsoever. It was all just getting out there and talking to people. And that's it. That's the connection. That's what I want and what I still want. The connections to me is more important than any other opportunities. Well, Eric, that's such a great story. I love hearing that. Since you're kind of talking about what goes in and how you started digitizing, can you kind of explain, because I don't think everybody really knows what digitizing means. It's just a word for some people and there's a fee associated with it. So can you explain what goes into a really great digitized file as opposed to Something that you get, you send it off to China and it comes back, you know, for five bucks, like you see everywhere on the web. Yeah. What's the difference between those two? Well, I think it's a difference in partially in what kind of assets we have, because I'm going to say this first, not all digitizing that comes from overseas or that comes for cheap is bad. In fact, the problem that I have with it isn't that it's always bad. It's that it's not always consistent. First, I'll say what digitizing is, since we talked about it just being a word. Digitizing, the way I'm going to define it, it's setting the sequence type, 
and direction of stitches. It's programming a file that motivates the machines to do every single movement, to drop stitches, to move the needles, to move the hoops in sequence, in color. And the thing that I really try and stress to people is to quit calling it digitizing because they also call turning like your old LPs into MP3s digitizing. That's the most common way you use that term. If you Google digitizing enough, when you're talking about embroidery, it'll start suggesting to you things about converting old media. Right. But digitizing is not a conversion. So when we talk about it, when we talk about fees here in the shop that I work at, we often call it programming because it at least gives an active feel to the thing that we're doing. And then we tell people that I set, if not every stitch, every block of stitches, the sequence in which they run, the type of stitches they are, and I compensate for the natural distortions that happen during embroidery. And that's done manually, at least in my part. So before I go on to that, that's what digitizing is. It is programming that sequence of movements that the machine does to create the design. But what's different from great digitizing, now actually I'm going to do this. Let's say what's good digitizing and what's great digitizing. Good digitizing is where someone can ably convert, if you want to say convert, ably interpret is a better way to say it, the art that's in front of them into a embroidery file, some file that will run on a machine that runs decently, doesn't have thread breaks, doesn't have too many color changes, doesn't waste movement, and that creates a fairly aesthetically pleasing version of whatever printed art or flat art that they were given. What great digitizing is, is when someone takes into consideration all of the variables that are involved, who, someone who takes into consideration the kind of material that's going on, the colors that are involved, and makes the most efficient file, but also brings into it the knowledge of the medium, a knowledge of thread, of fabric, certainly of how luster, texture, and dimension work in embroidery, because embroidery really is a three-dimensional art form. It's not two-dimensional. You're putting threads through this fabric, and it stands proud of that surface, of that substrate. It's more like a small relief carving, a small statue. And if you think of it that way, as a small relief carving, it's a different animal by far than printing. And all those interactions, if you can take those into consideration and make a file that is efficient, runs well on the machines, and is production-friendly is the way I like to call it, that's great digitizing. And that's a different thing. If you have all the artistic portions and that element of efficiency, that's great digitizing. And really what's different between what you're going to send out across the globe and what you can get from someone who's local to you I think the biggest thing you get is a relationship because the relationship with the digitizer means that you're going to have someone who is skilled and aware of all these interactions of the way thread and embroidery and needles and machines work and who's going to consult with you about what makes sense for your design. Mm. And hopefully, hopefully, if you're doing the right thing by your apparel, and this is something I'm sure we'll hack on a couple times here, if you're designing holistically, meaning you're taking your apparel into account, you're not just throwing one logo on everything you can find in the same fashion. You're going to have that relationship to lean on when you want to ask them, you know, what's a good position for this to go? How small can details get? What should I omit? What should I enhance? What can I do with thread that I can't do with print? A local digitizer or someone at least who you have a relationship with, it doesn't matter if they're local. Someone who you have a relationship with who's going to consult with you is just going to be invaluable in making what I would say, once again, it's great product. You can get good product from a regular good file that runs fine enough, that looks good enough, and you just slap it on whatever garment that you want to embroider. That's good work. You want great work. You want work that transcends promotional products, maybe gets a little closer to the retail sphere, maybe even gets closer to the fashion sphere. Having a relationship with the digitizer is going to make a big difference to how well you can execute. 
Right. Well, that's great. So what do you think the hardest thing to embroider is? I mean, I see a lot of people trying to embroider dry fit or do tiny letters on a really thick hat or some leather thing. I mean, what is the thing that when it comes through, you're just like, oh, my God, I got to do this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's quite a few of those things. I mean, nothing really scares me this far in. But the thing that bothers me, honestly, most of the time, it's the design more than the garment. I mean, you want to talk about the hardest items to embroider? I don't love doing backpacks and bags because quite often there's no access to the places that people want decorated. Right. So that's something that's really difficult. Literally, you can't get a hoop clamp or anything into it. And so you end up doing things like creating patches and having to heat seal them on. And sometimes you can't even get a heat press into the area you need to. So bags are pretty awful sometimes, golf bags especially, even if you can get access to things. If they don't have zip-off panels, you literally have to hold them up or use bungee cords to get that weight off of your pantograph, which is the moving part of the hoop there. Right. (laughs) So those I don't love. Dry fit stuff and performance wear, I think if you treat it the way you should treat it, isn't too bad. And a lot of people have trouble with it, but I think a lot of people also have trouble with backing down densities. I'll go ahead and say, since I'm talking about something pretty difficult and and, uh, technical here, Density is essentially how close together your stitches are, how many stitches you put into an area is its density. And I would say on the whole, most digitizers are probably using a little too much. They put too much density in because they want to get really clean coverage and sharp edges. They just throw more thread at it. When putting some underlay, which is stitching you do that's not on the top that doesn't show, it's used structurally to like lift up that top stitching. Sometimes we'll obviate the need for all that extra density. I think people make things too thick. We call it bulletproof is the joke. You make a logo that's so dense and thick that not only does it distort the fabric, but you couldn't put a knife through it if you wanted to. And that kind of bulletproof embroidery, I think, is what causes trouble. And certainly, because people like to use one digitized design for all garments, it's not the ideal way to do things. For performance wear, you want a lighter hand. You want to back down your density as much as you can and definitely use the right materials as an embroiderer. You need the right backings and the right stabilizers. You know, it needs to be the right way. So what's your favorite thing to embroider then if those are kind of the worst case scenarios? My favorite thing right now is probably soft shell jackets. Soft shell jacket takes embroidery like nothing else. It looks clean. You don't have to work really hard. So I love doing soft shell jackets. They look really good. Once again, you have to watch out for really big pieces. You can get a little tiny bit of puckering, but barely. So I love soft shells. We're doing a lot of those for a local event right now, the Balloon Fiesta, if you've ever been out to Albuquerque, and they look fantastic. So I love working on soft shells. It's a good smooth surface. So Eric, one of the things that I find really interesting in your very scientific approach to digitizing is that it's amazing about all the nuances and layers to digitizing and everything that's involved in it. So with that in mind, here's a question I have for you to consider. Do you feel that the digitizing industry is under siege by cheap web players, cheap offshore providers? people that are reducing digitizing to a mere setup cost that should either be done at the cheapest possible price or at no cost at all, because the real value is in the embroidery or the garment that is ultimately being delivered to the client and that the poor digitizer is an afterthought. Do you agree with that or not? I do. I'll qualify it a little bit, but yeah, I absolutely do think that the fact that people are constantly telling me, you know, how do I get the cheapest, best file? And but cheapest always leads it off. Yep. It's the worst. It's the worst thing you could do because the thing to think about is this. If you're gonna run that file on a thousand garments, yep. and let's say your first order is one hundred garments. One hundred garments, not a big order, right? But you're going to do that for the next ten years. Yep. You're gonna have a relationship with your customer for ten years. 
How many times do you want a bad trim to slow down your design? And that's just an efficiency question. That's nothing to say about the quality. Efficiency only. How many times do you want to make an extra color change? How many times does that 10 seconds in your run add up over the years? And it's tremendous. It's an efficiency question. It's something that I think Marshall probably would get on you with too, because Marshall, I know you talk a lot about production efficiency and especially in the guise of ecology too. But with digitizing, it's like how many more hours do you want to spend trimming and finishing a bad design over time? So getting it cheaply is, it's a absolute loss. Yeah, you might be able to get a customer in and out. And especially with the hail of small order customers we have now, I understand the drive for that and the push to have a cheaper digitizing experience. I really don't see long-term that there's any benefit, especially if there's anyone you want to have a relationship with long-term. Right. I know quality is not the only driver in the industry. Right. It is a big deal. So this just struck me here. So this is interesting to hear your approach. And I absolutely agree with what you're saying in terms of making sure that you can have a great digitized design, not only to make it efficient for the embroiderer, but also for the end client who's receiving that baseball hat or that soft shell jacket through the distributor. And so if you think about a typical apparel order, let's say it's an average order of $2,500. Sure. And it's a 7,000 stitch logo. And I'm just going to make up a price of, let's say, $75 for, for the cost of that, of that design, give or take. Do you think that digitizers are underpricing themselves in terms of the value that they're ultimately adding to that $2,500 order when you explain everything you're talking about? just now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, not all, because truthfully, some of the digitizers really aren't putting any thought into it. They're not asking you about the things that you need. In fact, here's the thing. If you find a digitizer who never asks you what garment you're going on, cut them loose. That's not a good digitizer, in my opinion. I mean, if they never ask you about the size you want something, what garment goes on. And I know that part of the problem is people find digitizers like me who do ask questions sometimes be a little more difficult because you have to answer questions. But if someone never asks you these questions, I don't think that's a good digitizer. And absolutely, we're undervaluing ourselves, especially those of us who are taking more time to have some artistic input. I mean, I think a great deal about texture. I think a great deal about the sheen and the interplay of light on thread. And it's not the same thing you get when you click an auto-digitizing button and get some fills and outlines. I don't think that the digitizers who are working hard at it, and I'll say even some of the ones overseas can be really great digitizers. It's not that they're all bad digitizers over there but they are underpriced themselves. And I know it's a different market and I'll be honest and say, I don't understand how their life is and how that works for them. Right. So I don't know if that's something they just don't have any opportunity to do. But if you are developing this value, if you are developing yourself into a person who's more a consultant for embroidery than just a digitizer, if you're selling yourself that way and you're answering these questions and helping people develop product, then there's no way you should be being paid that little. And honestly, it devalues what the rest of us do who are going to that extent, who are becoming more educated and working hard to have a more artistic interpretation. It devalues what we do when people do this on the cheap. Right. And so everything that you're saying right now is exactly what suppliers talk about, as well as distributors. And it's so interesting to see the connections, right? And all these businesses that are under siege by price shopping or price cutting people that don't value a service because the customer simply views it as a transaction. It's so interesting. So of course, I started off in this industry as a distributor when I started Right Sleeve in the late 90s. And the life of that business and the business still operates today, that one of the things that we've always tried to be sensitive to is how do we deal with the price objection? When the client says something like, 
I looked at all the SKUs in your presentation, I Googled it, and I found a source that is 10% cheaper. Will you price match or something like that? It's a typical exchange in this business if you're a distributor. And just like I'm sure you would get as well, like, oh, 10,000 stitches, 75 bucks, I can get that for 13 in China. (laughs) Same thing. And I think that to hear you talk about this consultative process, to talk about this artistic design-oriented process that then talks about the risk of going with something that's inexpensive because A, it'll gum up your machines, or B, your advertising impression over 10,000 garments is going to look not as great as it might if it was done another way. All of a sudden, as a buyer, as someone who's considering digitizing services, I immediately buy that because you have given me a compelling reason to pay the premium and a reason that's going to make me proud to pay that premium as opposed to someone that's feeling like I got ripped off. So I think we need more people like you, Eric, (laughs) that are as eloquent as you in terms of justifying, explaining value, because when you can speak like you just did, then it's worth the premium. And I think that's what we need in the industry. So good on you, sir. This is something that I have to say. And I mean, thank you very much. I think there are a lot of digitizers out there and I'm sure there are digitizers better than I am who are doing more artistic work or devoting more of their time to that kind of rendering. So I'm not saying I'm the best out here. I have some people who then, after I talk about these things, say, wow, it's a very high opinion. And I'm like, it's not just me. There's some really great people out here and I promote a lot of them. One of them that comes to mind is somebody I've done work with, Rich Medcraft. He's a guy who did some work when I did webinars with Madeira and he does really great small lettering. And sometimes I'll send people to people who do great. Like there's someone who does great animal renderings because we all have specialties like artists do. I think developing, like we talked about doing content marketing, number one, one of the great things about writing content is people get to know you as an expert. They do. And that's good for your business. Even if you're not just sharing with the industry, just sharing in general industry and out, it helps to educate the customer as to what they're getting and why it's valuable. So it's one of the other reasons I tell people to write. And the other thing I tell people is to go ahead and network with other people in your industry. I know it's a little scary because they might be your competition, but what I found it's not only is it enriching personally, which it really is. I've got a lot of people who I really consider my industry friends among them, you know, like Marshall here. Not only is that enriching personally, you're going to find that you all have a specialty. You all have a voice. You all have a hand in what you do. And if you promote each other, you can not only justify your quality, you can justify their quality and the reason why it makes a difference who you choose. And sometimes that means you lose a job to them. That's right. You know, sometimes I give up a job to a friend like Rich, or I had a friend who unfortunately she passed this year, Terry Hansen, but she did incredible work. And I know it sounds goofy, but dogs, she did really great dogs. And I know that sounds like what a small market, but it's a huge market for certain people. I mean, there are certain people doing gift market stuff for dogs and dog shows. And those people need a good digitizer who's going to work from a photograph and represent a specific dog. And I sent her so much business, you can't even imagine. And the reason why I did it, she was really great at that one artistic thing. But in sending someone, those people came back to me for stuff that I do that's more corporate or that's more designed or more graphical because I had talked to them and I was an expert who helped them out. And I think that that goes both ways for people. I mean, they need to realize that. So in the industry, I just want to tell people, please network, please share, please write when you can. And outside of the industry, I want to say, you know, do the same thing with your customers, share, teach, try and answer their questions. And also the one thing we all do, and I know I'm running off of the mouth here. I do this a lot. Um, (laughs) The one thing we all do is we like to write for things we want to say to someone, we need to try and write for things they need to hear. Yes. It's not what we want to say. Because a lot of digitizers want to write and say, I want to write and tell them how hard this is. 
I'm like, don't do that. Don't write what you need them to hear about you. Write what they need to hear to get the best digitizing they can. Instead, write, these are all the things that are going to affect your outcome and what I can do for you. And that's a much better post altogether. And it's a much better way of approaching it too. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I had a soapbox there for a minute, didn't I? <laughs> I love it. So let me ask you, I think there's a lot of misconceptions in this industry. And I say in this industry, I'm really talking about the promo marketing industry where, you know, we're selling that jacket or that cutter and buck shirt or that hat or that fleece or whatever. And then we're putting a logo on it, right? Yeah. I think sometimes there's a big gulf between what that salesperson's doing because not everybody has a really good relationship with the client and they're just putting a logo on something, okay? And then what we actually have to do in production and as a production-oriented person, I run up against a lot of time constraints or quality issues or somebody wants something that's their tiny type, yeah, two yeah. millimeter high type on a fleece jacket. And you're just like, what are you thinking, buddy? Yeah, yeah. So can you kind of walk me through what you feel from a production-oriented guy that you wish on a sales distributor level that those folks need to hear in order to sell more and to provide more value to their clients. Here's the top thing that I think they can get to, and you already touched on it. When you're dealing with a brand, don't just replicate the brand on every item you have. Coordinate. Make a coordinated solution. So if you have a hat, but you're dealing with a logo that's very vertical and narrow, Hats have a very wide, short field that you can decorate, as you might imagine, right? You know, the crown of a hat is going to have about two and a quarter, two and a half inches safely that you can decorate on like a mid-profile hat. But you can go almost like six inches wide between the panels. And if you don't care about going over the panel seams, you can go seven, eight, nine, ten, depending on how you're going to do the decoration. But if you have a tall, narrow logo and you try and just jam that logo into that space, it looks terrible and you have no coverage on the hat. Now, sometimes that's okay. If you see the dad hat trend, it's like a tiny icon in the center of a low profile hat. If that's your aim, that's what you're doing. That's cool. That's a style choice. But when you're trying to get impact and we're talking about promotional products here, say you're trying to get something that's going to have a message that you want visible from a distance, putting a tall, short thing on a hat doesn't make sense. So you should design something new that includes some of the branding elements, but is horizontal in aspect. And I know that I'm going really technical, but it's one of the key things people don't do. And, you know, though it's hard sometimes to go with a different decoration method than you love, and it, it was certainly hard for me to learn stuff like that, doing the right thing for the eventual end viewer of what you're using, especially if we're talking about making the promotional products market more about advertising, knowing what to do for the end user and the viewer is really important. And strangely enough, the other thing I'll say about this, if, I, if I'm talking about misconceptions, when we talked about good digitizing, that's another thing that's important here because part of the experience of wearing a garment isn't just how that logo looks, but how it feels. So if you don't have a good hand, that's another problem with your eventual experience. If you've got a customer that doesn't like to wear your garment because it feels bad because the digitizing makes the embroidery too heavy, that's bad. A lot of the misconceptions are around what can we do to make that final product the best it can be? And I know we talked definitely about coordinating with the design side of it. Like I said, you get good digitizing so that it feels good, looks good. It doesn't disrupt the garment too much. And you want to design, like we said, for the garment. But the thing is, you can also do things that are not just corporate setups. It's like so many people just want to go straight for, 
here's the logo we have, here's our seal for our club, here's what it is. I'm going to take that, slap it left chest, and that's the end. And really, what I think people should do is look at larger brands and say, you know, does the Apple logo have to have everything that Apple ever did? No, it has an Apple logo. It's one very simple thing, and it can be placed anywhere on anything, and people know what it is. Now, we don't all have the luxury of that kind of recognition, but if you look at any other kind of thing you can see in retail, like I think of sports teams, look at the different hats that sports teams use and how crazy the decoration can get on those caps. It doesn't water down their brand. It's all versions and coordinating things that come to you know, the colors are the same. Some of the graphics are the same, but the rest of it, there's a lot of room for play and it's still identifiable. And I think if people kind of get more comfortable with that, they realize you can make event apparel, promotional apparel that plays in that retail space and coordinates, not replicates a logo. That's really the biggest thing I can say about garment decoration and promo products. Like don't just slap a logo on everything in the same traditional positions. You know, think about placement, think about coordination, think about also putting together packages. One of the favorite things I've done, we had a local bar and grill and they were very kind of youth focused. They're down by the university campus here. And what we did was variations on their logo where we'd have part of the logo on the hat, a different element from the logo on the shirt printed, and then an apron that had the full-on branding. But we sold that to them as a package. It wasn't sold as here's a hat, full logo. Here's a shirt, full logo. Here's an apron, full logo. It was here's a uniform package. And also here's how that goes in with your paper printing. Here's how that goes in with your online presence. Being part of that discussion Having some design in your blood, which is important, you got to absorb some of that. I would say all you digitizers get out there and learn some design. That makes a big difference. And certainly, if the promo products people want to make the best kind of garments they can, think outside of the logo and the standard position. Right. Eric, I want to turn my focus to technology because I know this is an area where you love geeking out in and you know you've said that you're the in-house IT guy <laughs> you know wherever whatever situation sure. you find yourself in and you know your curiosity certainly allows you to embrace technology so I'm curious if you have any suggestions for distributors or decorators such as yourself to beef up their e-commerce presence are there any apps out there that you'd suggest for folks and here's where I'm going to probably throw you for a slight loop here I tend not to tell people tools, and here's the reason. I think that people don't think about their audience enough. Yep. And one of the things people do is they always ask me, like, what social media platform should I be on? And I'm like, where are your customers? And a lot of people, what they haven't done is define their customer base, figured out who they want to target, and find out where they are. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter what app you use. Certainly, I'll say I've had some great luck with lately. Instagram has been great for me. And it's not a ton of people who are on there, but the people who are on there are very interesting people who share a lot of cool stuff. And that's great. I mean, anytime you've got something that's focused, like Pinterest is great. I know Marshall does great on Pinterest too, and he ha has done. Anything that's visual is going to be great for decorators, obviously, because you're going to want to show pictures of everything. But where I still get the most traction is probably Facebook. And that's maybe surprising to some people, but that's where the people are for me. They're on Facebook. That's just what it is. I mean, it's great to run along with the Gary V's of the world. And I love Gary Vaynerchuk and the stuff he does, especially when he talks about being social and what it means to really care about your customer. That's huge. And that's the thing that's great. But I don't think we all need to be on Snapchat all the time. It doesn't make sense for all of us. Not everyone's business is Snapchat. But what he does do right, and like I said, what's not techie about this, what's not geeky, is giving value and caring. The biggest thing you can do no matter what is to care. And the funny thing about it, I always say when you're talking about social media, the key word in social media is social. Yep. We're doing something that's actually very old. And as a medievalist, I can promise you that. Uh, <laughs> 
being social and caring about your neighbor and caring about your customer as if they were your neighbor and caring about their business and their person. It's something that's risky and takes a lot of work, but if you do it correctly, you'll develop relationships that are much more valuable. What I will say though is like everybody's carrying all the tech they need in the world in their pocket. The smartphone is everything. I mean, and both for consumption, definitely I want to tell everybody go mobile with anything you can. Be ready to be visible on mobile. But you've got such a tool in your pocket. If you're not using it right now, you're out. You're losing. I mean, you you should be capturing what you can and sharing what you can. And you have a tool to do it in your pocket. People who are afraid, like I talked about earlier about writing and making content. If you're afraid to write, take pictures. If you want to take video, if you're cool with video but not with writing, do video. Do something. Share what you're doing now and share the work you want to do. I, I can't stress that enough. If there's a kind of work you want to do, share that work and share it in the place where the kind of customers you want congregate from whatever app you use. Right. And so a flip side to that question with regard to technology, I mean, you've talked about how technology can be a real enabler and can allow people to promote themselves and stand out within a crowded marketplace. When you look at the digitizing sector right now, are there technologies out there that have the potential to completely disrupt what it is that you're doing? And if you don't get on that specific train now, you will be out of a job within five years. In my opinion, and you know, history may come along and kick me in the teeth for this one, but in my opinion, there's no technological solution that has gotten anywhere near what a human digitizer can do. There have been a lot of attempts at automatic digitizing, but one of the things I talk about regularly is surface quality, right? And we talked about the fact that I tend to think of things as sculpture. Well, no amount of auto digitizing software thus far has been able to draw a line that isn't there. So let's say that you have, and this is a very specific case, something like a silhouette. And it's something that I do pretty frequently. You have a silhouette of a person. I will tend to use a different stitch type and cut apart that silhouette so that I have arms that look like cylinders. So that I have a, say a shirt on this person is a flatter stitch. So it looks like a flat garment. The legs will have satin stitches, once again, looks like cylinders. The face may even, if it's a large enough piece, have a nose or lips or something that are carved on top of that silhouette so that when the light catches the silhouette, the details of the piece, as if it were a black painted sculpture or something, say it's a black solid single color piece, are there. It's not for everything you do, but for some things, it makes a tremendous difference. I love like doing heraldic lions or crests or stuff. When that was really popular, I love to carve all the pieces on the animals so that You have light that travels across those surfaces and reflects differently depending on the angles of the stitches. Auto-digitizing can't do that because it can't see the lines. Only someone who draws those lines can see those. And the other thing auto-digitizing is fairly terrible at so far is text. And text is so huge. Everything we do, there's so much going on with text in communication, of course, because what we're ultimately doing is communicating something. And unless auto-digitizing gets better with text and it just hasn't so far, I don't think that's going to happen. What I will say, though, is that if digitizers don't get on social media, don't get on promoting themselves, that don't teach the rest of the world what we're good for, that either the people who are doing it for very little or the people who are using auto-digitizing and trying to sell price as their only motivator, that's the people who are going to endanger you. Those of us who are charging more need to make sure we make it clear why. And that's more important by far than I think the technical advances. Certainly, there's great stuff coming out for embroiderers where we're able to get into areas on garments we couldn't before. And we're able to use like mounted lasers on machines that enable us to do, you know, applique very easily and reverse applique, stuff like that. And that stuff's all great. And if you have the market for it, absolutely use it because those tools are fantastic. But 
When you're talking about digitizing, I think we're pretty solid. And I, like I said, I've seen masterpieces done on every level of software, depending on someone's dedication to the craft. And some of the best pieces I've ever done, even to this day, were done on that old system that was sitting in the corner of my first shop. It was DOS-based. It couldn't draw a curve. I had to make the curves out of straight segments. And I did all that processing manually. And those were some of the best pieces I've ever done. There's some of the most mastery in those pieces because I controlled them stitch by stitch. And that tells me that, you know, the quality itself isn't there. The problem you have there is speed. So certainly, you know, update your software, get good software that works for you, but it's not going to be the ultimate determinant of your quality. Eric, tell us about your fascination with using vintage designs, Celtic resources, typography, and everything else you're continually sharing on social media. How does that make its way into your work and what benefit do you think you see from that? Well, the first thing I'll do is be a real nerd here, put on my nerd glasses and say that they're not Celtic designs. Those are Viking Age Scandinavian designs (laughs) that I'm into. (laughs) So there you go, everybody. There's the big nerd correcting moment. But no, they do play in, honestly. And I'll say decorative arts of all kinds. I'm a big fan. And certainly if you want to talk specifically about the medieval stuff, we talked briefly about the fact that I was studying to be a medievalist. And a lot of what that is, is medieval Scandinavia, very early medieval. So we're talking about Viking Age, sagas, that kind of thing. Or Anglo-Saxon stuff. That era of stuff, I love the artwork from that point and the decorative surface work that they did, especially in metals, is really interesting and intricate. One of the things I'll say that it actually plays into in my embroidery is I'm very good at pathing, which is when you establish the direction things run in embroidery because the interlaced work, which is where everybody kind of likes the Celtic work too, it's very similar, that in and out, that under and over, I'm very careful with that in embroidery. And in fact, I think what it's great for is when you're doing text or cursive or script or outlines, I'm very careful about where those junctions are and how they go. And a lot of that's probably because of my fascination with that kind of artwork, you're right. But when you're talking about like all the retro stuff, you know, my dad was a mechanic. And so I grew up on all this product decoration, all the stuff that was on boxes from old cars. He's a classic car enthusiast, all the old oil can stuff like that. It's a lot like, I know you guys had Aaron Draplin on and I love that guy because he's got the same feeling I do. All that ephemera, all the weird old type and matchbooks and that stuff, I'm into that too. And I think people took a lot of care with items that we think about as throwaways now. And I think we need to do it again. That's what I think the best people in promo products are going to learn to do soon again is know, hey, if someone's going to carry something in their pocket all the time, it should be something that they enjoy, that delights them, that's interesting, that they want to show someone else and that feels good to use. And if you have all those things together that you're going to get so many impressions that it's going to be worth it for you. But yeah, I do get into all that stuff and including that typography Well, I started all this out doing English, doing literature. And so typography is great because I can take my love of the word, my love of letters and bring in my love of graphic arts, put that all together and you get to do all the typography and the hand-drawn type. You certainly have been brave sharing examples of your personal art with outside projects. How does that happen and what benefit do you think you get from that? I have to give immense props to a designer named Von Glitschka. And a lot of people would be probably familiar with him, even in the promo products industry, because he's done a lot of work that ended up in promotions. He's really a graphic designer, dyed in the wool, kind of a craftsman, if you want to call it that. And that's something I really appreciate. He's all about making this ultra clean vector. I mean, you could use his vector to drive any machine that uses a vector graphic for darn sure. And the stuff that Vaughn does is he starts everything analog. And I came into this so digital, I never drew anything. 
Like I never sketched. The only time I drew was sometimes you're trying to figure out, say, like pathing the sequence of designs. And when I was really early on, I learned that if you can't figure out how to keep those stitches moving in the right direction, drawing over the design printed out with a pencil and not letting yourself pick it up will absolutely teach you how an embroidery machine is since you technically can't really pick up a line. It's going to drop a stitch no matter where it's at unless you're trimming. So it's like if you want to minimize those trims, you just draw like you can't pick up your pencil. But outside of that, I had never really drawn. And frankly, I have zero drawing training aside from what I got from those classes. Anything I draw is something I either taught myself or, like I said, much far after I had been digitizing, I took like one 101 level course in college. And that's about it. That's all I've got for art training. So his classes were great. And I think the best thing he did was just make you do it every day on a prompt. And it's just reps, you know? And why I shared it was the same reason you talked about. People are really afraid to make a mark and show it. And I thought, if I get out there, and despite the fact that I might be, and I'm a perfectionist, so it's mildly horrific to show everybody how bad my work can be. But if I get out there and show people, you know, this guy who, especially at that point in my life, you know, I've been writing about digitizing embroidery for so long. I'm like, here's me not only starting a new thing, doing something that I'm not necessarily great at, that I'm not the expert at, and risking it and putting it out there, sharing it and just saying, this is what I did. If I can do that and put that risk out there and I mean, get whatever commentary I can get, then maybe somebody will go out there and share their design, share their digitizing, share in their local community, and hopefully honestly come down to making not only some great work that they enjoy, but getting some business. I think that sharing is so important, both in business and in a personal artistic life that I keep promoting it and trying to, I try and take those risks first because I know A lot of people, when they see someone else take the risk, they can do it. And if I can do that and they get that from me, then that's awesome. It's worth every possible embarrassment that I could (laughs) could get out of sharing my work. (laughs) You're great. And I know you talked briefly about me showing my drawings and I don't know whether to take it well that you said it was brave. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) I was brave. They're not always the best. So Eric, this has been an absolute whirlwind of a podcast. Like not only have we covered like these macro trends with regard to your work in TV, as well as just talking about things in technology, but I've loved how we've been able to get into the nitty gritty of you know why digitizing matters. We always like to give our guests the opportunity for the last word. If there's anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with, this is your chance to do it. So, you know, I would say the biggest thing I can tell people is to go ahead and share. I mean, you're going to have moments that that scare you, but being in that moment, it's very transitory, but the things you'll gain out of the relationships you get and the things that will come back to you from that sharing, it's worth all of it. And I know you mentioned that TV there. It's something I want to tell people, you know, you're going to still get scared even later on in your career. The first time I saw one of my designs on a major network show, I think though I did some stuff for other shows, one of the ones that really struck out was like second episode of Better Call Saul, these two policemen walk up. And as they turn, their shoulder patches are fully in view. And even on the screen that I'm watching it on, maybe it's like a 50-inch screen, they are larger than life size by a massive amount. Yeah, I remember that episode. Oh yeah, every flaw in that Albuquerque police patch was visible to me. But that's not what anybody else saw. Everybody got back to me and said, oh, that was so cool. Was that that patch you did? And they were excited for me. All the horror I might have felt And believe me, there was some horror. One of the patches, somebody nicked it and I saw these threads fringing out and it just filled me with like disgust. I was so (laughs) horrified that that was on there. But absolutely, I'm looking at this thing and for all the freak out I'm having, even for the simple patch, it's like everybody was so congratulatory and saw nothing but the good in it. And you're going to find is most people, that's how they feel. And they're not going to see every little flaw that we see. So share your work. And also 
people who are not in any sort of artistic, you know, bent at all, whatever you're doing, it doesn't have to be digitizing or design or anything like that. Get out there, share what you do and share the things you want to do more of because people will find you, but you have to be out there and visible to them. And the other thing, truthfully, the people who you might look at as your industry heroes, a lot of them are willing to talk to you, talk to them, ask questions. Most of us, I know myself, I spend a lot of time out of my week just answering questions for people and from the most basic to the most arcane questions you can think of. Because what I really want is to see this industry be the best it can be and for these people to be happy doing their job and for their customers to love what we do so we all float up, you know? So share and ask questions and get out there. Risk something. It's worth it. Risk caring about what you do and the people you do it for. I love it. What a fantastic note to end this on. And really want to also thank Marshall for joining me in the co-pilot seat here. And of course, Marshall for bringing Eric to the Promo Kitchen community. You were the driver behind getting Eric on the podcast. So thank you so much, Marshall. It was awesome to do this with you again today. Yeah, it was great. No problem. I'm glad we didn't crash the plane. Everything's good. (laughs) Until next time, folks. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.